0: Our first author tonight is Katie McMahon. Katie lives with her family in Hobart and we're blessed with her presence here only because she has a very close friend in the area who she wanted to visit at Outspoken. (laughs) At Outspoken we grasp our authors from where we can. Katie, like a couple of the characters in her novel as it happens, is a working doctor, a GP. She also teaches communication skills to medical students. She describes herself as a lapsed masters of creative writing student. And let me say there are uh, many, many um, around the world of those, not many of whom have written such an accomplished novel as this one. And she says that our hobbies, other than squeezing in time between patients to write novels, are reading and drinking tea. Katie has previously published articles in The Age and The Quarry. The Mistake is her first novel. just before I go to Katie, I want to talk this novel up a bit. I was terribly impressed with the mistake. It's beautifully plotted, which is something I admire enormously because I find it so fiendishly difficult to do myself, but also because of the likeness of tone. One of the protagonists, the two sisters who form the core of the book, Kate observes the world around her from a delightfully sharp and humorous point of view. Please welcome Katie McMahon to Mulaney. And maybe I can begin just by asking you, where did this novel spring from? What was its starting point?
1: Oh, that's a good question, and I wish I had a really good answer. There's a few answers. There's a long-winded answer, actually. Someone said to me a while ago, well, of course, I know with these kinds of novels there's always a formula. And I think they might have meant novels written by women about women and including an aspect in it of relationships. And I said, well, I wish I knew what the formula was because I had to make it up. So I didn't really have one, you know, moment, unfortunately, if only, because, yes, the plotting was fiendishly difficult um, where the story kind of popped into my mind. But I guess for me the... The inspiration was really a couple of characters who I felt like I knew, who are, as Stephen says, two sisters who form the core of this novel. And there were also a couple of themes that I wanted to explore. And the characters had actually been with me for a long time. So when I was younger, in my 20s, I wrote kind of like a prequel to this novel, including these two characters. And then life kind of took over and work and kids and I always used to wonder, well, what happened to those characters? And then when a few years ago I had some time, I thought, well, maybe I'll try to find out by writing that down. And and uh, and then and I, and I guess another thing that was happening around that time was it was around the time I was turning 40 and... I was, to be honest, astounded by the kind of, like, grief that I felt when I realised I was moving into another phase of how the world saw me. So, I was... You know, when I was in my 30s, I was like, Oh, you know, when I turn 40, I'll be free from the male gaze and I'll be liberated... (laughs) And won't it be wonderful because I'll just embrace the fact that I've got my career and I'm a loving mother and blah, 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 blah. And, um, yeah, then I was not so much feeling liberated. <laughs> I was feeling gutted. Um, I was feeling not enjoying that, that difference in perception and you know, I'm not saying that I was ever kind of particularly gorgeous. Uh, you know, I was just average looking, but I think that all young women are constantly appraised, right? And um, yeah, like people are saying, yep. Yeah, like like the women all, you, the women all know. And then I don't, th- I didn't realize how much, what a big impact that was having on me until it stopped happening. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I I remember going to China as a tour guide and walking amongst the Chinese... ...and realising that nobody was looking at me as a sexual object. And it was really kind of... <laughs> like, Hold on a second, you know? I mean, I mean I'm not trying to say that, that people generally look at me as sexual... Yeah, ...but what okay. I was trying to say is, was that, that there was no... There yeah, was none of that at right. all. I was, not, I was not a subject of that yes. interchange which yes. goes on all the time. As a young, I was quite young at the time. Yes, it's,
1: it's a whole culture. It's a whole world which you're very much part of without really realising... And then when I wasn't part of it anymore, I I, I didn't enjoy it. And that got me really thinking about, you know, about... I I guess I extrapolated that theme and and explored the theme of beauty and how the way people look impacts on how the world treats them. So, I was interested in exploring then how does... um, you know, how does the way you look affect your confidence how much of it is really your attitude and having a positive attitude about yourself? Is that really true, that if you've got a positive attitude, people are going to receive you well? Or, or is it just if you happen to be born really gorgeous, people are going to receive you well because you look hot? Um, yeah, so that, that was a starting point, I guess, an inspiration for, for Kate's story in this book. Yeah.
0: Which is interesting because, uh, as I said, there's, there's kind of these two sisters at the centre of the book, but... Yeah. Kate, one of them, who is, speaks in the first person, has a name very similar to your own.
1: I have a blind spot about names. It's so oh, what, embarrassing. You, you
0: didn't notice this? No.
1: <laughs> I know, right? It's, it's so embarrassing. My editor said to me, you know, like, this is two years into the writing process. I've got the book deal. The first time we spoke on the phone, she said she'd never met me. She'd never seen me. So, she said, oh, you know, is Kate based on you? Uh, Kate is the heroine of this book. She's stunningly drop-dead beautiful. (laughs) I was like... Oh, oh no, I just, Kate's just her name. That's how she appeared to me. And, oh, yeah, it is quite similar to my name, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Tegan, my editor, said, well, you know, people are going to ask you about that. They're going to think that Kate's based on you. I said, oh, no, as soon as they meet me, they'll realise that's not the case.
0: <laughs> and, and once the audience... once oh, Sorry, once the readers get 40 or 50 pages into the book, they're going to see that there are some differences between yes, you and indeed. Kate. Yes, indeed. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so Kate's story really, where that's all going with the beauty thing is, is to do with Kate is this beautiful young woman whose career is founded on her beauty, whose self-image um, and sexuality, sense of her own sexuality is founded on her beauty and then she undergoes an experience which drastically changes the way she looks and the way she feels about how she looks and uh, so, so really her, her story is about coming to terms with that.
0: Mm. And <coughs> I made this kind of cheap comment in the introduction about you know writing this novel between patients, li- patients. But honestly, you know, how do you manage to find the time to write a novel and be a practicing doctor?
1: Well, I only work part time, and um, <coughs> I have a really great husband who does heaps. And I just had, um, you know, I had, be- be- I had around two days a week two to three days, which were writing days. And I just would, you know, take the kids to school, come home and sit down at the kitchen bench and write until it was time to go and pick them up from school. And
0: You do realise this is very unusual. Well,
1: (laughs) I I actually don't. Um, Thank you for (laughs) enlightening me.
0: (laughs) No, because most writers that I know... Tend to have to write every day because it's like they say it's like riding a bicycle if you go too slow you fall off and if you leave too long between approaches to the manuscript when you go back to it you can't find where you were you can't find and another day or two is wasted trying to get back there
1: yes i i agree and i think well i i there, there were times when i was writing this book actually towards the end of the second draft where I did I, I would I would take a, f- a few days and go away um, and and just work heaps but actually a really good friend of mine who I greatly respect I sort of said to her very early on three or four years ago what what do you think like about this you should write everyday thing and she just said oh well look that's the ideal but if you can't have it just do what you can do and I was like oh yeah okay fine yep So I just did that.
0: (laughs) So, look, would you like to give the audience a flavour of the book? Just maybe read a a short passage for us?
1: Okay, yep, thank you. So, in this scene, Beck, who's the other sister, has just found out that her husband, a doctor, has been publicly accused of sexual harassment. ...and she's at home making dinner, waiting for him to come home. Before Stuart got home, she realised that she'd better pull herself together... ...brush her teeth and at the very least make a salad. She was standing at the bench, cutting cherry tomatoes into leaky halves... ...when he came into the kitchen. "'I got a roast chicken,' she said... ...as if that was the most important thing in their world... We can get the kids to bed earlier, that way. When he didn't reply, she glanced up at him. Bless his heart, he looked like a 12 year old at his first disco. Where are they? His voice sounded so hearty that it made her want to start crying again. Upstairs, to give him a bit of privacy, she turned back to the tomatoes. They're watching a movie. He probably wouldn't realize that was a special treat. Beck, Beck, you believe me, don't you? She put down the knife and met his eyes. I believe you think you're telling the truth, she replied. But you were pretty drunk, Stuart. He had been, not falling down drunk, but a fair bit drunker than her. And I know you wouldn't ever have gone through with with what you said, but the way you were all carrying on, the way those horrible men were talking... Well, I mean, things like that do get said, Stuart, and not everyone who says them has rapists tattooed on his forehead. She sounded angry by the end. She picked up the knife and went back to her tomatoes. Right. He used the same tone as when interns were incompetent. Hard. Exasperated. Polite. As if she was the one who'd done something wrong. I'm just getting dinner ready she snapped the knife back down onto the chopping board. He had absolutely no idea what her evenings were like. Then I'll put the kids to bed, then we can talk, all right? Okay, his voice had softened. Whatever you want, Beck. What I want is for this to have not happened. She picked up the knife again. And I don't know if you're planning on saying anything to the children, I can't do it. She knew she was being horribly unsupportive. But her kids, her kids, her kids, her kids. Thank you.
0: That's a a, a very powerful little passage from that novel, which oh, kind of is one you. of the linchpins of, of the whole book. Yes. Um, I just I just wanted one of the things that, that says in the blurb of the novel is that you um that you part, part of it at least came from you taking part in a masterclass run by the internationally best-selling author Fiona McIntosh. Mm. Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yes. Yeah, I'd love to. So, after I lapsed from my Masters of Creative Writing uh, degree, in cliched manner, um, I happened to remark to my dad, uh, who's a journalist, oh, look, if ever I did manage to write a book, I'd really love to write something that people read. Um, <laughs> and he said, he said, oh, well, that's good. It's good you've got clarity about that. <laughs> and um, anyway, and, and my dad has a policy that he does not buy Christmas presents for anyone over 12. Like, he's very generous to the grandchildren, but his own children, you know, you, you're, you're on your own. Anyway, that Christmas, which must have been around 2017, he called me into the garden. He said, oh, don't tell you brothers. And he had bought me this, this opportunity to go to this masterclass, uh, which was in Adelaide. And, yes, as Stephen says, Fiona McIntosh, who's a um, very successful kind of commercial fiction writer, runs these masterclasses. So, I was so stoked because not only was I going to get to go and do writing, I was going to get to go to another capital city and have six nights by myself in a service department. <laughs> I was so excited. It was, it was, you know, one of the first times I'd, I'd gone away by myself since having kids. And really, the main thing I got out of it, great friends, great camaraderie. There's just a small group of about 12 of us. And the other thing was Fiona McIntosh, she's so no-nonsense and she's kind of like, you know, an English hospital matron in the old, you know, those olden days stereotype matrons. And she'd just say things like, oh, well, that's nonsense. You just have to write. And just sit down and write. No one cares. I don't want to hear the excuses. Just sit down and write. So I would just always hear her voice in my head um, whenever I was going, oh, this is all just terrible and awful. Just, just, just write.
0: (laughs) And it was very, very, very good advice, and I'm glad she gave it to you. Thank you so much for coming, Katie McBrown, to to, to Mulaney.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you.